Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. My name is Mark Dupuis. Um, you might recognize me. I took my mask off uh, this morning so you could see me. You might recognize me coming through the, the halls of the church for the past 30 years or so. Um, been attending here since 1992. I became a Christian in 1992 as well through the ministry of Grant Memorial. Um, it's been a long time ago. Whenever you start something with like in the 90s, like 92, you just feel old. So, but that's okay. Vintage, right? They're worth more. So I became a Christian through the ministry here, um, which is very important to me. I met my wife here. Um, so this church holds a lot of value to me. And so uh, 12 years, I was a lead pastor of a couple different churches in the Baptist General Conference. One, I was in Enola, Manitoba, which is actually a church plant of Grant Memorial, I think sometime in the 60s. As well, I moved to Saskatoon to preach there for uh, six years as well. Most recently, I've been called to ministry at uh, Youth for Christ. I'm an endorsed missionary and I've uh, been loving my time there. It's a great team. It's a great, uh, great area to work in. A lot of, a lot, there's a lot of needs there. And so what I do at Youth for Christ is I supervise six areas of ministry. And so I get to use my giftedness and my experience of ministry to lead the leaders that are running those ministries and to lead the leaders who will be the leaders of the churches moving forward. I'm also uh, in my first uh, year of serving on the trustee board with a great group of guys, and I'm looking forward to continued involvement through that. And it's just an honor to serve in that way with, uh, with that team that is there. It's also an honor to be able to be here with you this morning. It's, uh, it's a privilege of mine, and, and it feels, I don't know how to word it, it feels heavy, right? As I just stated, I became a Christian through the ministries of this church. I met my wife here. Um, this is, the last time I was on this stage was the first service, but the time before that <laughs> would have been uh, in 1992 when, when Tom Castor was praying for me and my wife as we went and pastored in Enola. So this church means a lot to me. It's my home church. Wherever I was, I'd always come back here. This was always home base. And so it's definitely a privilege for me. So Cam asked me to speak, and I jumped at the opportunity. And so I'm like, I sort of feel like that substitute teacher, right, who's coming in and like, you know, hey, let's make it all easy, and let's just play a video, and let's just watch, you know, Bill Nye the science guy or something like that, right, for all you teacher folk, right? But we're not going to do that. I want to make it a little, little different. We're going we're gonna to have a, a quiz. We'll just do it a little different. So this is a quiz on phobias. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of share the phobias, and then you can yell it out in a polite manner. There's no prizes, so we don't have to hurt each other. I'm going to name the phobia. You tell me what the fear is. We're going to start off with some easy ones. Arachnophobia is the fear of? Now I have that. Claustrophobia, fear of? Confined spaces, right. Hydrophobia? Fear of water. Pelodophobia, fear of bald people. <laughs> Auroraphobia, fear of the northern lights. Caliprophobia, fear of obscure meanings. <laughs> Xenophobia, fear of strangers or foreigners. Odontophobia, 
fear of teeth. So you wouldn't want to be a dentist if you had that. Okay, here's one. Phobophobia. Fear of fears. A couple more. Graphophobia. Fear of writing in public. Um, and my favorite, bear with me, hippopotamonstrosequipedaliaphobia is the fear of long words, right? <laughs> like, why would they have made that so long? Somebody wasn't thinking. So there's a lot to be fearful of in this world. If you're like me, snakes, spiders, and heights kind of rank pretty high. There's also aging parents, warring siblings, uh, wayward children, job loss, pandemics, wars, doctor diagnosis, financial pressures. There's a lot of fear coming at us. And around every corner, there could be the potential of more fear. I've even heard of a number of people uh, getting off social media over the last little while because there's too many opposing viewpoints on social media that cause a lot of fear to kind of well up inside of people. And so this morning we come to Mark, to a fear-filled passage. And so let's just jump into it. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, if you want to open it up to Mark chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 35 to 41. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Jesus calms the storm. Verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Um, there was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Let's pray. Father God, once again, we come to you humbly asking you to reveal to us um, what you want us to learn. God, and we recognize that it could be different for each one of us here. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear from you. God, and thank you for the holy scriptures that you have preserved for us to learn from and to live by. We thank you for all these things and many other things. In your name we pray. Amen. So in Mark here, we come to a series of historical accounts that show Jesus as a miracle worker, right? So we're going to talk about today his power over nature, but in future passages, we're going to see his power over demons, over sickness, death, and others. And so when we jump right in here, we see in Mark 1 that Jesus and his disciples are still in the boat teaching. Right? If you go back to verse 1, he, he hasn't gotten out. It's just, a, and then he says, and then he says, and then he says. He keeps teaching the people who are there. And I can only imagine after a long day of teaching that Jesus is tired. He needs a rest. He's going to have a nap. 
Now, I'm also assuming the people on the shore were expecting Jesus to get out of the boat, maybe come up on shore, maybe to do some healing. Maybe there were people who were sick. They heard that Jesus was there. They came along, and they were expecting him. But Jesus, being fully human, needed to go rest. And I assure you, when I get home today after teaching, I will be having a nap as well. And I assume that most pastors have to have a Sunday afternoon nap, but it's probably one of my favorite things about preaching. (laughs) So here we go. Jesus and his disciples set sail. Now, I also don't want to pass over the fact that there were other boats in the water because uh, verse 36 tells us that there were other boats with him. Now, this this is only recorded in Mark, nowhere else in the Gospels. And it's easy to gloss over in our reading of the passage. But historian Josephus suggests that in a body of water at any given time in the Sea of Galilee, there's 300 boats fishing. So as Jesus is teaching, you can picture 300 boats gathering around. Now, even though they were fishing boats, I'm assuming at this point they knew who Jesus was and they kind of clumped into sea and catch a glimpse and hear what Jesus was talking about. And so there's other boats. And so as the disciples with Jesus, set sail across the Sea of Galilee among these 300 other boats, we read in verse 37 that a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, it's interesting to note that the Sea of Galilee is a relatively small body of water. It's 11 kilometers wide by 21 kilometers long. It's 150 feet deep and sits 680 feet below sea level. Because the Sea of Galilee sits so far below sea level and is surrounded by mountains uh, on the west, it is susceptible to sudden storms. So the cold currents come over the mountain, Mount Hermon, and get sucked into the warm air of the Sea of Galilee, creating storm-like conditions. And this can happen really quickly. It's been recorded that there's been waves as high as 10 feet, which would be enough to capsize any boat. So the, the disciples knew this. Because most fishermen fished in the evening and at night. During the day, the the weather was much more treacherous, and so it was so much more volatile, so they didn't know what to expect. So most people fished in the evening or at night. So by the reaction of these veteran sailors to react as they did, this must have been an extraordinarily severe storm. So while the waves are pounding uh, the boat and the winds howling furiously, we see verse 38. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Now this is the only gospel that mentions this cushion and the only place in the New Testament where we read that Jesus was sleeping. Now we assume he was sleeping. He was fully man. He probably needed to rest every night. The cushion here was actually meant for... uh, for guests, distinguished guests who were along for, for the ride. Not for the fishermen. The fishermen were rowing, usually three on either side. They were rowing while people were either dragging nets, casting them out, or dropping their line into the water. But Jesus takes this cushion and uses it as a pillow. So while the storm raged, Jesus slept. Now, one of two things. He was either that exhausted, which he probably was, that the storm did not wake him, or he had full trust in the Father to keep them safe. As the wind was pounding the boat, the water spilling over, he was able to sleep on a cushion. 
So as this storm is happening, Jesus is asleep on this pillow. We continue on to verse 38. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? The disciples were tired, I'm imagining, just like Jesus was. It would have been a long day for them as well. And they were equally looking forward to getting on the other side of the Sea of Galilee for a good night's rest, maybe some supper. So they were concerned. As the storm was raging, the the disciples clearly asked if Jesus cared for them. Now the disciples are asking like an angst-filled teenager, right? I picture them asking, similar to how, you know, as, as parents, as adults, you have a long week, right? You've gone to work 40 hours a week. Maybe you have a commute there and back. You've driven four out of five nights to extracurricular activities, driven to youth group. Then on the weekend, you're like, I can rest, right? Well, no, you got to dust, you got to vacuum, you got to do the laundry, you got to meal prep for the week, you got to go grocery shopping, get gas in the car, shovel, uh, shovel again, and you got to make sure that you make that lasagna just right with the 14 layers, like meat, cheese, like you can't go wrong with meat, cheese, and pasta, right? So anyways, so you do all this, and it doesn't take a short time, you're spending all day making this, you're tired after a long week, at supper time, you go to your teenager, can you please clean up after supper? And what do they respond with? I have to do everything. (laughs) That's how the disciples are reacting. Like, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we die? They misunderstood the situation. They acted in fear and anger instead of trust and faith. And after their question, we read in verse 39, he, Jesus, got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. The word used here is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark 1.25 when he casts out a demon. Quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. Jesus rebukes the wind the same way he casts out a demon by speaking directly to it, speaking directly over it. Now, as such as a miracle as this is, the real, the real miracle is not seen in the sudden ceasing of the wind, but in the sudden calmness of the sea. What would have normally happened is that there would have been waves and it would have been choppy as the wind dies down. But when Jesus speaks to it, it is completely calm. Now, remember when there was, we talked about uh, Josephus, there's 300 other boats roughly in the Sea of Galilee. So as Jesus calms the sea for his disciples to save them, he calms the sea for 300 other boats as well to save them. So this isn't just a small miracle. It's a large miracle with a lot of personal implications. Because remember, these people, if they weren't fishing, they would have gathered around to listen to Jesus talk and teach. And now they were directly affected by his words, by his divinity over nature. The boat was out of control. The wind and water were out of control. Their fears were out of control. But Jesus was never, ever out of control. After Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea, he turns his attention to the disciples to rebuke them. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples had been with Jesus when he cast out demons. They had seen him heal on different occasions. They were with him when he forgave others. 
They saw how he dealt with the Pharisees. They heard his teaching time and time again. But when the storm came up, they forgo everything they experienced and lash out to Jesus saying, don't you care if we drown? Do you have no faith? Jesus is asking them to see the critical factor in their faith is not its strength, but the object of their faith. Tim Keller shares this illustration. Imagine you're falling off a cliff and sticking out of the cliff is a branch. That is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know just how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab the branch. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of the faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. And Jesus is the branch. It was, because of an, it was because of a lack of faith that the disciples were rebuked. And after Jesus rebukes the disciples, we read in verse 41, they were terrified. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but this is the third time that Mark uses the word great. So we're going to go over it if you've missed it. In verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. The storm was not just a storm, it was a great storm. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died out and it was completely calm. The great storm turned into a great calm. And the third usage of the word great is found here in verse 41 we'll use the King James Version that says, and they feared exceedingly. The great storm turned into a great fear. Sorry, the great storm turned into a great calm, which gave them great fear. This fear is the realization and understanding about the person of Jesus Christ. This fear is the realization and understanding about the person of Jesus Christ. He had done something that they didn't know and they were scared. If we think back to our phobia quiz at the beginning, one of the words was xenophobia, fear of strangers or foreigners. Now, if you've ever watched uh, an alien movie, right? So typically how an alien movie plays out is uh, cut to a scene of a skyline, uh, cut to the clouds, the clouds move away and the alien ship comes on and everybody starts running before you know if they're good aliens or bad aliens. Have they come to hurt you or protect you? People run because they don't know what is coming. Another way to put it is if you have kids or grandkids or you know anything about kids, you stick something in front of them, and probably me too. If you stick something in front of me and I don't know what it is, I'm going to say, I don't like that. And so what do you say to a kid when they say, I don't like that? How do you know you haven't tried it? That's the idea of xenophobia. Fear of the unknown. And that's what the disciples would have felt. The experience that night would have been ultimate xenophobia, the fear of the ultimate stranger. They did not know what they were seeing. The person they thought they knew was now a stranger to them, and what he was doing was foreign to them, even though it was a good thing. 
calming the storm is a good thing, yet it caused their fear to grow. So I'd like to point this out, that even in the good things, we can be fearful. I know this all too well in my own life personally. When I became a Christian, I was the only Christian in my family. So uh, February 22nd, 1992, at about 8.30 uh, in the evening, right before a Mile on a Broken Heart concert, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Nobody in my family was. My parents, my grandparents, aunts and uncles, nobody as far back as I know uh, were Christians. So I consider myself the white sheep of the family. So, but because of this, God calls me to ministry and I leave to go to school, going to Briarcrest. As I'm walking out the door of my house to get into a friend's car, my parents are at the door saying, don't go. You don't have to go. You can stay and get a real education, go to a real school and get a real job. I was scared. When I went to pastor my first church in Enola, when God called me there, it was clearly God. If you want to talk to me about it, by all means, please let me know. I'd love to share more with you. When God called me to Enola, I only had a three-year youth BA. Fun fact, uh, I crammed those three years into seven years. Again, it's part of a great story. <laughs> so I was fearful being called into pastoral ministry, feeling ill-equipped, to do that. And even more so now, two years ago, being called to Youth for Christ as a missionary, right? How many of us have ever said to God in our prayer times, God, don't call me to be a missionary, right? Like, thank you for your honesty. Appreciate that, right? I did. And God in his infinite uh, humor has called me to be a missionary. So if there's anything that scares me as much as being a missionary, I don't know what it is. Because you're relying on other people to love, care, support you. We can be fearful in the good things, the great things. Now, if I can take a minute, let's shift gears. I want to add in a commercial here. And you don't have a DVR, so you can't fast forward it. I want to advocate for the missionaries. So if you go on the website, go to Grant Memorial, uh, click on the outreach button, you'll see all the missionaries that are there. There's 19 when I checked. And when it comes to the missionaries, we all have an obligation to them. So there's three things that, that a church needs to do for missionaries. Three things. There might be more, but three main things. We need to pray for the missionaries. We need to encourage missionaries, and we need to give financially to support missionaries. Now, finances come and go. Maybe there's a season you can give, maybe not. If you can, praise God. If you can't, praise God. But the two other things you can do, we talk about prayer and encouragement. Every missionary I know would covet your prayers, would value an encouraging word. Take some time, look through those 19 people, see who's, who you know. If you recognize somebody, shoot them an email. Encourage them, love on them, pray for them. This is important. Because as we're just talking about, fear can creep up at any time, even in the good things. Your pastor, Cam, Steve, Cheryl Lee, encourage them, pray for them. 
Ministry's tough. We need to love each other in this way. The disciples, back to our program. The disciples thought that they knew Jesus, but their fear intensified at what Jesus did. When we look at this, what do we do with it? What do we do with this passage? You see, it seems like verse 41 that things just kind of end. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. End scene. How do we take this and apply this to our lives? What do we do with it? Now, I think the application for us needs to be clear. Because we often look at this passage and we read that since Jesus got the the disciples out of the storm, that he surely will get us out of any storm that we face. Now, while this is true, that is not the central truth of this passage. The central truth of this passage is the growing of our faith in hard times. When you go through the storms of life, do you feel close to God or farther from God? If you feel close to God, awesome, your faith is growing. If you feel far from God in a moment of fear, who moved? I just don't feel close to God. Well, who moved? If we know that God is God and he never leaves us nor forsakes us, that he indwells us with his spirit, if we don't feel close to God, who moved? We move out of lack of faith. One commentator said this, we, in contrast, have no excuse. We know Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing. We know he has taken care of all of our sin. We know he rose from the dead. We know he can be trusted no matter what. Trials and difficulties are divine appointments to strengthen our faith. So why are we still afraid? Do we still have no faith? We need to grow in our faith so we can overcome fear when fear creeps into our lives. And as Steve talked about a little bit this morning, that what's going on in Ukraine can cause great fear in people, anxiety. We need to be able to combat that. Now, I think Psalm 27 really helps shed some light on what we need to do in order to grow our faith so that we can withstand the storms of life. The first thing that we need to do, faith overcomes fear when Jesus is first. Faith overcomes fear when Jesus is first. Verse 1 of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So the first words of this psalm form an expression of faith. Right? The Lord is my light and salvation. The first thing, their expression of faith before the fear. Whom shall I fear? And it's repeated. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Who should I be afraid of? We're putting Jesus first. The name of God is first before fear. Now this is as practical as waking up in the morning. What is your first thought when you wake up? Faith or fear, belief or unbelief. The psalmist greeted the day with the name of God. And because of that, fear overtakes, sorry, faith overtakes fear. But this faith can't be vague or ambiguous. The faith that overcomes fear has solid content. And that content comes 
from the Holy Scriptures and is carried out regularly. If you're not regularly in the Word, do not expect to eliminate the fear in your life. There are so many different reading plans, Bible apps. There's so many different ways that we can read the Bible that there's no excuse. Whatever it takes for you to dig into the Scriptures regularly, do it. Try a reading plan. If it doesn't work for you, try another one. If that doesn't work for you, try another one. Keep going until you find something that works. Then at that point, Jesus will become first because that's what we're going to be focusing on. Christ eliminates fear because it's what we focus on. Focus on Christ, not the fear that we are facing. Faith also overcomes fear when it's personal. Let's reread verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's pretty obvious to see how personal this becomes. The psalmist cannot separate the personal from his faith. See, the psalmist here did not overcome fear through understanding Old Testament theology. He did not just explain the theological concepts of light, salvation, and refuge. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of theological ideas that we can read about in books or online. But all of them together will not give you an ounce of courage in the face of fear unless your relationship with God is personal. The faith that overcomes fear is the faith that moves from secondhand knowledge to firsthand experience. Just as there is a great difference between reading about a kiss and experiencing a kiss. So, get real for a second. Do you have that personal faith? Do you have that personal faith that saves you eternally? Are you experiencing Jesus or do you just know him? We're going to circle back on this in a couple of seconds. Put that in your pocket if you're asking yourself those questions or if you've answered them in the negative. Thirdly, faith overcomes fear when we solely focus on God. Psalm 27, 3 and 4 says, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though a war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Singleness of desire. Are you a, a, a one thing person right here? As he asks, one thing I ask. Are you that one thing person? The future fearlessness of your faith rests on the singleness of your desire. The psalmist confirmed in verse four, one thing I ask from the Lord. One thing. People who give themselves one thing can accomplish a lot. Marva Drew of Waterloo, Iowa, between 1968 and 1974 typed the words one to one million in, in words. So one, O-N-E, two, T-W-O. She typed one to a million on a manual typewriter. She used 2,473 pages. When asked why she did it, she said, I love to type. That's it. She was obsessed with one thing. She had a singular focus. How focused are you on Christ? The psalmist could speak of a single focus that filled his own heart so much so that he makes the single, 
the most single-minded statement to be found in Scripture when he continues in verse 4. One thing, one thing I ask from the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The psalmist here habitually longs to be in close communication with him, both physically and spiritually. We put Jesus first, we make Jesus personal, and we focus solely on Christ. Now, this is not an exhaustive list to combat fear, but it's a great start. Pick one of these. This is not do all three in order, um, four minutes a day, and everything's going to be good. This is a process that you dig in and you work through. Put Jesus first. Make Jesus personal. Solely focus on Christ. In the words of Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary in China in the 1800s, who lived under intense pressure and difficulty, he says this. It does not matter how great the pressure is or how powerful the fear. What really matters is where the pressure and fear lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you near his heart. My prayer is that through the storms of life, that it draws us closer to God, nearer to his heart. One thing that I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So again, we put Jesus first, we focus solely on Christ, and let's double back to making Jesus personal. Where are you in your relationship with Christ? Do you have one? If you don't, we can fix that. Jesus is calling, he wants to love you, he wants to be with you for eternity. For anybody here who has these questions, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. Come talk to me. There's, gonna, there's some others that can kind of linger around and, and do the same. If you're online, there's a button. Click it, pray now. There's somebody ready to help you out. This is the single most important thing that you need to do to overcome fear in your life. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the holy scriptures that you have given us. God, I pray that each one of us here and online, I pray that we will draw closer to you, that you will help us to be single-minded in our devotion to you, God. Help us to keep you at the front, that when we wake up, we thank you for the day ahead. God, we love you. Help us to draw nearer to your heart. Help us to dig into the scriptures regularly. God, we love you. God, if there's anybody here who has not yet received you, God, I pray that they would take the courageous step and do so. God, if there's anybody online or anywhere, God, soften their hearts enough to ask for prayer so we can walk them through what it means. God, I thank you again for the scriptures and how you have preserved it and how 2,000 years ago these are still very valuable, important words for us. God, help us not to hold the scriptures lightly. Help us to cling to them so that we can know you more. We just thank you for this day that you've given us. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening with us. 
For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.